When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Nike gets its biopic edition. It's Wednesday, April 12th, 2023. On today's show, the movie Air recounts the original courting of Michael Jordan by the shoe company Nike, a partnership that revolutionized sports and arguably everything else since. It stars Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, and Viola Davis. It will be on Prime right now. It's in theaters. And then the TV show Beef is on Netflix. It's a dark dramedy about a road rage incident that changes the lives of the ragers, maybe forever. Uh, they're played by Stephen Yun and Ali Wong. And finally, we discussed Boy Genius, one word, the indie rock supergroup with Slate's own Carl Wilson. Joining me today is Julia Turner of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And uh, we're just chuffed. Is that the right word? We're pleased. We're very pleased uh, to be joined by Rebecca Onion, friend of the program. Uh, of, I should say you're a, uh, Rebecca Onion is a Slate writer. She's also the author of Innocent Experiments, Childhood and the Culture of Popular Science in the United States. Rebecca, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. It's great to have you here. Shall we plunge in? Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, it's 1984, and Nike is a shoe company, perfectly nice shoe company, but really a running shoe company. It has no presence in the relatively limited basketball sneaker market. However, one of its employees is a very gifted basketball super scout. His name is Sonny Vaccaro, and he decided that the company should go all in on signing rookie to be Michael Jordan to an endorsement deal. He believes that Jordan's going to be a transcendent talent. Not and not everyone did going into that draft, by the way. The problem, everyone else, is own CEO, Phil Knight, played by Ben Affleck, Jordan's agent, David Falk, played just blissfully well by Chris Messina. And most of all, Jordan's iron-willed mother, played by Viola Davis, who has no intention of letting her son sign with Nike. All right, in the clip, we're going to hear Matt Damon as Sonny Vaccaro talking to Ben Affleck, playing Phil Knight, the CEO of Nike. Let's listen. I'm willing to bet my career on Michael Jordan. Come on, man. You ask me what I do here. This is what I do. I find you players, and I fucking feel it this time. Okay, it's risky. When you were selling sneakers out of the back of your Plymouth, that was risky. It took balls. I mean, that's why we're all here. Don't change that now. I mean, if you look at him, if you really look at Jordan, like I did, you're going to see exactly what I see. Which is what? The most competitive guy I have ever seen. He is a fucking killer. All right, Julia, let me start with you. This is a this is a funny movie, right? It's like kind of in some super obvious ways a total crowd pleaser. In other ways, it's like kind of not... It's not a biopic. It's not a sports movie. It doesn't have a... It's a sports movie about the sport of capitalism, Steve. <laughs> you stole You stole my best line. Take it away. 
Steve, are these guys going to close the deal or what? Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, dear God. Oh God. Dear God. I'm, on the, like, I'm in the edge but, of my seat all over, all over again. But I was. Like, it works. It's a fun, you know, it turns capitalism into a sport and, and makes you think it's revolution. And then it makes it pretty fun to watch. I saw this movie in a full-ish theater. Like, I think this is the most full I've seen a theater since the pandemic. People clapped at the end of it. Mm. And it feels like an absolute throwback, not just because Mary Lou Retton is like bouncing on the mat in the opening montage. At one point in the middle, there's like a cut from scene to scene where you just see someone shuffling trivial pursuit cards for some reason. Randomly. (laughs) Very, very weird. Um, It has a lot of fun with its um, period in, in the costume and the production design and in these montages. But I don't know, man. I really enjoyed myself. And then afterwards, I was like, what was that? I, I, you know, there's like a gauzy mention of Nike's outsourcing. There's, um, you know, a, a lot of attention is paid to uh, the the terms that Michael Jordan's mother strikes with the company in which he participates in the revenue around the shoe line that's named after him, which is revolutionary and part of a broader trend of athletes participating more in the revenue that they generate with their sport, which is a genuine good within, (laughs) within capitalism. But like, I I don't know what this movie was, but I had a great time watching it. (laughs) That's my response. (laughs) Wow. Okay. I'm just like, Okay, I I need like a cold compress or something after that, or like a <laughs> hot sock to the jaw. But uh, uh, Rebecca, what do you think? Uh, I resented liking it too. Um, or Julia, I shouldn't characterize it that way. Maybe you didn't resent it. As a socialist, <laughs> I watched it thinking, man, these guys, by whom I mean uh, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, are such pros. Like they just made a machine of this story that just had so much in it that was like riveting to me. I loved watching Matt Damon as sort of like a middle-aged sort of paunchy, uh, and I'm not fat shaming, they pointed out in the movie, (laughs) Um, kind of like they did some like roughening to his face to sort of just make him look kind of like just a guy who sort of just needed a win. Um, And it just uh, really worked on me the like late nights conferring with the product designer who's like a secret genius at making basketball shoes and like gets the Air Jordan to like emerge from his mind all of that stuff really really worked on me um I I don't know in some ways it felt like a sports movie I don't know I'm not a reader of the sort of like biographies of business that are in airport bookstores and are quite popular but it sort of made me think, wow, if, this, if that's what it's like to, to read those, you know, business stories, maybe I should be reading more of them. It's sort of thrilling. Oh, man. I mean, I hated everything about this movie, and I hated each thing <laughs> as much as I could possibly hate any one thing. And then I bundled it all together and felt more reserves of hate that I didn't know I had. So, um, Ooh, Wow. I, I love this. Enticing. I actually really loved three performances in the movie, and let me single them out. Uh, Chris Messina is just sublime as David Falk, just famously foul-mouthed, you know, asshole. There's just no other word for it. Um, Jason Bateman, similarly, again, just if Jason Bateman's on screen, I'm having a good time. It's like an ironclad rule of American entertainment. And then finally, Viola Davis is transcendently good in the movie. She brings a dignity that it doesn't otherwise have and a believability. Okay, so let's 
back up a little bit. The hero of this movie is not capitalism per se, but capitalism as we've known it since the 1980s, which has been a complete and utter moral and ecological disaster for humankind in this planet. And I find it impossible to ignore that. And Nike, specifically because Nike is a perfect example of everything that's bad about it. Nike pioneered this basic structure, which is that you uh, offshore all of the labor to, let's admit it, sweatshops in um, Asia. You manufacture something for pennies on the dollar, if even that. Uh, You hyper-brand it with celebrity power in the United States and then sell it at a preposterous markup. And many, many, many bad things have flowed from that. I can't believe I watched a movie with Nike um, as its hero. And secondly, Sonny Vaccaro ruined basketball, right? Like, Sonny Vaccaro is an incredibly sketch figure in the world of basketball. He runs camps for um, underage, uh, very often poor black kids, um, who are aspiring basketball players. And I urge listeners to do a little research into, into you know, what they've wrought uh, since they were made. I There's a certain style, Julia, of sort of nonfiction filmmaking where the same dumb punchline gets hammered over the viewer's head over and over again, which is, can you believe how naive the past was about, you know, about the present, like, ha ha, so this hilarious joke, they think it's going to sell three million, they think Michael Jordan might be too small or skinny, or they think blah, 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 it's like, we get it, we get it. You know, this is a movie about back-end participation, right? It's, it's, and God bless Michael Jordan, he earned every penny, you know, he made, and he is, every seemingly inflated claim they make about Michael Jordan is scaled only to his transcendence as an athlete and as a basketball player. I mean, but well, that, yeah, that, that I mean, said, that's... I don't understand what people see in this movie or what they could possibly be rooting for while they watch it. Well, one, one way I would frame it is that it's actually like, why is this what Ben Affleck and Matt Damon are choosing to do with their time and power? And the thing that seemed kind of the most cynical about it to me again, after I thought about it, after the haze of like, well, this is fun, um, is that it is kind of telling a good moral story about cutting the, you know, world-changing black athlete in on the revenue made by the white-owned American corporation to sort of obscure, it's telling that as a heroic narrative Mm -hmm. to obscure the underlying narrative of like... (laughs) Um, the wastefulness of having so many different shoe designs that people want many, many different want to own multiple sneakers and can't afford to own multiple sneakers. And then multiple sneakers are made and the waste is made and the shipping costs are, you know, just the, 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 you know, the disposability of the culture of mass production. And like, that's just a weird choice. Mm hmm. The, uh, there was another false note in the movie. You signaled out the performances, which are great, which I would agree with you. And I thought Matt Damon was great too. Ben Affleck's performance is terrible. Yeah, I, I agree. think. And <laughs> like he sh- yeah. he he he's in like an SNL sketch about this. The costumes are bad. The wig is bad. Like <laughs> it just feels like um, like he's not a he's he's a punchline, not plausibly 
the complicated figure who turned Nike into a cult. I mean, the, the, the film keeps cutting to like these co-ends of Nike culture and how you're supposed to be disruptive and get and fight for results mm-hmm. and blah, blah, blah. You know, all of which, I mean, I believe in work. I like working. I don't, I don't <laughs> like the critique of capitalism that is like no one should ever try to do anything and, and it's shameful to have a corporate sense of collective pride. Like, I don't buy that. And parts of Nike's culture seem genuinely interesting and cool. But like, who who is the guy? Why does he have a purple Porsche and wear pink running shorts and, and you know, is like a Buddhist cutthroat? Like, that's an interesting figure. And... And Affleck's performance just doesn't get there at all. And so that also lends the movie this quality of like, wouldn't it be fun if we all got to hang out and make a movie about Michael Jordan, as opposed to what if we made a movie about the actual moral complexity of this? I mean, maybe the theater wouldn't have been full. Maybe maybe they're better filmmakers than me (laughs) because they didn't make that movie. But like, I don't know, man, they should know better. And there was the, the cynicism of framing this story as one of black empowerment um, really cut the wrong way Mm. when I started thinking about it. And the way there's a couple of times when you can tell that they're like, they're trying to, I don't know if it's, I don't know if I would say they were so cynical that they're trying to cover their ass by having first by having the Jason Bateman character, who's the marketing director, I believe, uh, like mention the fact that uh, all the shoes are made in Asia now, and he is not sure how he feels about that. It's like a line that's so shoehorned in that I don't even know. It's weird. Why yeah. it was it? Why it was in that section? <laughs> I didn't know. I was like, how'd they pick that character to give that to? That just like they just threw a dart at a board and like picked him. Um, and then the second moment is when they're having the big meeting with Jordan, the, their big chance to convince him to take them up on this deal. Um, and uh, Sonny Vaccaro, the Matt Damon character, gives this speech about how Americans love to build up a hero, and then, you know, this is what your career is going to be like. We're going to build you up, and then we're going to tear you down. I guess the implication is, like, Nike's going to be with you, or, you know, like, <laughs> we understand, like, what's going to happen to you, or uh, I don't even know, but it's sort of this, like, faux depth to it um, that made me think that they, you know, were in some way aware that this project is just kind of ridiculous in all the ways you guys just described, um, but not aware enough to not make the project. <laughs> yeah. All right. The movie is air. I loved it. You know, go see it. <laughs> <laughs> Thumb way up. I laughed. Uh-huh. I cried. Uh, I vomited. Uh, I rolfed. <laughs> I fainted. Uh, and I lost two hours of my fucking life. Go see the movie. Anyway, so it's uh, uh, it's in theaters now. It's going to be on Prime eventually. You cannot watch it in either format. All right, moving on. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. All right, well, now is the moment in the podcast when we discuss business. It's typically Dana. I'm the guy this week. We have just one new item this week, and that's to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, we're going to talk about leftovers. It's how have we never talked about this before? The idea was inspired by a new book by Tamar Adler called The Everlasting Meal. Our guest host, Rebecca Onion, she's read the book. She's interviewed Tamar. And so she thought it would be fun to talk about it. I agree. Uh, talk about our approaches to leftovers and food waste. So if you're a Slate Plus member, make sure to stay tuned for the segment at the end of the show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, well, first of all, shame on you. Why? Why are you doing that to us? You can sign up today. It's so easy to rectify at slate.com slash culture plus. Members get ad-free podcasts, lots of bonus content, a ton of it, like the Slate Plus segment I just mentioned. You also get to hear members-only programming on other Slate shows like Slow Burn and the Political Gab Fest. Members get unlimited access to all the great writing on slate.com. I should also mention that you'll be supporting our work at the Culture Gap Fest and the work of our brilliant colleagues. These memberships are very important for Slate. So please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. All right, back to the show. All right, well, Beef, it's a hit show right now up on Netflix. It stars Stephen Yun and Ali Wong as two Strangers who engage in like a DEFCON 5 road rage incident with one another. He's a struggling contractor trying to make his business work and and not really succeeding. She's a super high-end boutique plant store owner uh, who may or may not be selling out to a corporate overlord. Each is at a crisis point in their respective lives personally as well as work. And what follows is a very... Very dark, very, very funny in my estimation, dramedy about marriage, siblings, uh, family life, ambition, uh, a doggy dog world and shelter possibly within it or not. Um, the show was created by Lee Sung Jin. And in the clip we're about to hear, uh, we're going to hear Danny, played by Stephen Yun. He's pretending to be a concerned contractor knocking on the door of his new enemy's house uh, in order to vandalize it or maybe just get some kind of revenge after their altercation. She's never seen him before, so she lets him in. And, you know, despite Danny's sinister motives here, they actually kind of hit it off. Let's listen. Ah, uh, yeah, I definitely see some warp here. Uh, I'm sorry, are you, are you serious right now? Yeah, they're just like, it's just absorbing all this moisture. Fuck, there's always something. Yes, there's always something. You know, it's like you work so hard for so long just to provide for your family, right? Yeah, not you, then who's gonna? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then at some point, you think you'd get to relax, but no, there's too much moisture. So now I got to redo these fucking cabinets. I got to redo the roof, probably, and then by the time I'm done... I'm running out of money, the kitchen's out of style, and the whole time, all I wanted was a fucking hot tub. (laughs) (laughs) We have a timeless kitchen. So, I think you're okay. (laughs) I'm sorry, I just, uh, I'm just tired. Rebecca, let me start with you. What'd you make of beef? Oh, I loved it. I ate the beef up. (laughs) Um, You know, it's funny because I I listened to you guys talk about Lucky Hank, which was a show that I watched some of to write about for Slate and sort of was just like, oh, I'm tired of midlife crisis shows. Like, I'm Mm -hmm. tired of midlife midlife crisis stuff. 
despite the fact that I'm in midlife and perhaps, I don't know, could be susceptible to this kind of story. Um, but for some reason, I guess this is sort of a midlife crisis movie, although I think these people are maybe in their 30s, possibly. Um, but it's a movie about just being like, oh my God, nothing I do is enough. And I'm just like furious all the time at everybody and don't know how to resolve it. Um, and I thought to myself, this is like, I don't know, the way these two people are kind of uh, rubbing up against each other and the way that the show explores what they bring out in each other. Um, I don't know, I was just very hungry for it. Um, I liked watching it. And they're fantastic, I thought, the two of them together. Mm, Julia, what about you? I really enjoyed the complexity with which these characters and their struggles are written. It's funny because the and the the inciting incident is so it's both like minor and over the top. You know, it is road ragey. Like not, nobody dies. They there some flower beds are sacrificed, um, and it's like a small moment of adrenaline and chaos in an otherwise pair of pedestrian lives. Um, but I really appreciate the writing and the performance of both of these roles and you find this slightly odd setup believable that they both are finding this beef like more exciting and it, it, it's serving the role in the narrative that like an affair does like it's exciting and energizing and more interesting than the thing that they're stuck in and feels like a way out or a way to escape or a way to feel something you know it's 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 novel as a structure um, and then uses that novelty of the conceit to explore this really interesting world of kind of Asian American, Southern California, uh, m multiple different ethnicities within that, you know, world, uh, multiple different class levels, multiple different communities. Like it's, it, it, it's a very smartly conceived show. Um, and it's very well written and performed show. I really, I liked it. I found it a little cringe like I don't know I didn't I don't know that I'm like snackably hooked on all of them because I'm like oh god don't do that oh no not that you know it's it's, oh. it's not it's not curb cringe but it's 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 the you know why are you being so self-defeating cringe thing that I sometimes have trouble watching so it's it's so believable that it's almost a little painful at times I thought but I I really loved it I really loved it too I mean I I loved it unreservedly I think this is just up there with, you know, anything in peak TV recently, five years further. I, I, I just, it's, you know, life is ugly and weird and people are radically imperfect. And it's the role of art and popular art to reflect that back to us in a kind of a recognizably human way. And like the fact that TV has turned into a medium in which you can do that in my lifetime is shocking. And I thought this did that as beautifully as, for example, Fleabag. I'm not done with it, but I'm barreling towards the end. I can't wait to get back to it. Um, the performances, to my mind, are perfect, right? They have precision and depth. The writing is subtle and very, very funny. Even as you're right, Julia, it sometimes conduces to exceedingly broad um, scenarios, beginning with the, the road rage incident. And as a social document, it's so fascinating. It sends these really subtle filaments into exactly the cultures that you were describing, sort of Asian American California, and just some examples, right? So the uh, Danny character, the Stephen Young character, has his relationship with his brother is so 
so gets, I didn't have a brother, but it gets at the psychology of men so well, of like the one, he's the alpha dog because he's the older brother. And the younger brother has turned into this sort of beefcake. And and the ways in which the uh, Stephen Young character needs to psychically compensate for that and deny it, even though he's assimilating it at almost every moment, their relationship is so real. The relationship of the Stephen Young character to, he, he has a cousin, Isaac, who's just shady beyond shady and f- like very, very funny. And their relationship is is gripping. It's totally fascinating. And it's you're exactly right, Julia. It's like this incredibly broad brush premise. And then the broad brush gets tucked away forever and these really fine pointillist brushes come out with this rich color palette. And it adds up to this is one of my favorite TV shows in ages. Am I am I overpraising it, Julia Turner? It sounds like you think yes. I know. I don't think so. I mean, I just, just, I, I found it potent, which is why I yeah. felt cringy about uh, it, but okay. not, yeah, not yeah, because yeah. I found it weak. And and the performances broadly are very good. And Ali Wong, as she makes her turn into to acting from comedy, is quite good. Stephen Yun is like next level generational. You know. Um, just a bonkers actor like Street, yeah. Meryl Streep mm. like the subtlety the depth the how much he does with how little yeah. like to me his performance is so profound and lived in and believable and desperate and um, he's just an all timer yeah um in a way that is that elevates the whole project, which is no knock on Ali Wong's performance or anyone else's performance, but you can, you know, in a totally normal way, that's that's true of men, much good acting, like you know, kind of see the performance there, and and then Stephen Yun is like just performing at an insane level, which I think grounds and electrifies the whole thing. If you can both ground and electrify things, I think that's the literal opposite <laughs> of what grounding yeah. is in electricity. <laughs> but anyway, he does that because he's so magical. I sort of, am, I know what you mean about feeling um, like unsettled by it or like uncomfortable watching it. Like I don't really usually like watching stuff where the people are self-destructing or like, or also there's a lot of like pretending and kind of like feigning. There's a little child who's often in danger <laughs> or like very anxious, um, yeah. which is always hard to watch, but, um, but just so perfectly used like this child in this case is Ali Wong's character, Amy's child. And she's kind of absorbing all of the anxiety of her parents around her. Um, I don't know. I thought this was going to be a show about two people who were angry at each other, but it ended up being about like everybody angry at each, like every character. Yeah. Uh, in this constellation of people um, is like feels unseen as the internet would say, or like feels diminished or feels um, like life isn't quite what they wanted it to be. I guess maybe with the exception of the small child who's also anxious, honestly. Um, But there's something about watching, like for example, the, um, the husband, Ali Wong's husband um, played by uh, Joseph Lee is just like a sort of like a really gorgeous <laughs> house husband who's sort of taken up the bulk of the of the childcare and the way their marriage is going the way his 
you know, feelings about his art and his father, who's a famous artist, are sort of translating into his feelings towards his child, but also towards this person that he's married who's proving herself to be unreliable, um, unpredictable, uh, uh, you know, someone who maybe shouldn't be with a child or, you know, shouldn't, but who's sort of providing all the money for the household. Um, there's a lot of anger in him, too. There's anger in his mother, who uh, was the one who was married to the famous artist and now uh, finds herself without money. Um, just all the different ways that this stuff plays out. And uh, the ending is, like, uh, so well done and perfect. And I don't want to spoil it, but they, it brings it all together so well. All right. I guess I will. I'll get through my dread and keep watching it. So uh, Julia, the ending. It's so good. Mm, I, <laughs> yeah. can't, I can't wait. Um, Julia, let me ask you one question. Let me see if I can phrase it quite right. Like, I, I, I think Ali Wong's performance in this is just is just tremendously, tremendously good. In part because, as written, also her character is a woman who's no longer as young as she was, and she's feeling all kinds of unbidden yearnings in the within the confines of of married life. Um, one of which is apparently sexual, and the way in which that is foregrounded and isn't foregrounded, not at all moralized. It's like not, it's not, we don't, I don't think we as viewers feel a kind of agony about her dilemmas. We're just sympathetic to those dilemmas, I felt. And I thought that that was maybe not, it's not unprecedented, but it's, you know, it's, we're not entirely out of the shadow of Madame Bovary um, in American culture, right? And it's like, this was as far out of the shadow of that as I can remember any depiction being. Yeah. I mean, I think this is what I meant about the writing of the two, of both characters, of both, both Ali Wong's character and Stephen Yen's character, where, I mean, the show just regularly shows them doing unsavory things, having unsavory desires. Um, I mean, she's, She's deluded. She thinks she wants to be a stay-at-home mom and she wants to sell the company and get out of it because she wants to be a stay-at-home mom. But then she's incredibly insulting to her husband about Mm -hmm. what the work that that, like she has no clue what that actually is. She doesn't actually want that. She's like depressed and she just wants, she's fantasizing about like, quote, not working or not doing anything, which is, you know, just unusual to have the, the woman be the person who's so dismissive of that kind of domestic labor and is sort of fantasizing Hmm. about it without understanding it at all. Yeah. And it doesn't feel like it's scoring reverse gender points. It just Mm -hmm. feels very lived in, you know, like it, it's her, her desires and her delusions seem quite specific and plausible and real and sort of neither good nor bad. Like there, there's a version of this that's very you go girl, right? Like the downtrodden woman speaking up for herself. Yeah. Female rage. And this is like, <laughs> Oh God, she's broken. He's broken. Everybody's yeah. broken. <laughs> like, you know, it's not, it's not raw, raw, but it's not moralizing. There's just there's the, the sophistication of, the psychological portrait of these midlife crises basically is part of what, what gives the show depth and legs beyond the kind of high concept conceit and the, you know, novelty for Hollywood of, of situating it so deeply in this, Mm -hmm. these particular subsets of Southern Californian life. Right. All right. Well, the show is beef. We seem to all love it. Um, It's on Netflix. Uh, It'd be great if you checked it out. And if you did, let us know what you thought of it. All right, moving on. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. 
Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. All right, well, Boy Genius, one word, is an indie rock supergroup. It's made up of Phoebe Bridgers, Lucy Dacus, and Julian Baker, each of whom is a sort of indie rock folk star in in their own right. Uh, Together, they're Boy Genius. They made an EP in 2018. It was great. Uh, Now they're out with a full-length record called The Record. Joining us to discuss it is Carl Wilson, Slate's music critic. Carl, welcome back to the show. So glad to be here. Carl, I loved your piece about them. It's terrific. It's up on Slate now. They are breaking really big now, uh, which uh, maybe is a bit of a surprise. Why don't you talk a little bit about that and why? And also how this is a diff- this is a really, in some ways, a very similar record, in some ways a very different one. Your piece gets to it beautifully. Discuss. I mean, the, the breaking big is, is a bit of a surprise, but at the same time, seems kind of foreordained. It's true that I think the album is now like at number four on the Billboard charts, which is a level of mainstream recognition that that definitely has not quite reached any of them in uh, their solo work. But um, Phoebe Bridgers over the past two years, um, or three years since her um, second album, Punisher, came out in the very dawn of the lockdowns at the beginning of the pandemic, has really, really uh, made more and more of an impact. She was on Saturday Night Live. She um, is opening up for Taylor Swift on a bunch of tour dates in May um, and and kind of has a an intensely, um, um, almost over-intensely online fan base. But Lucy Dacus as well had a really um, acclaimed record that came out in 2021. Um, Julian Baker has, for years and years, established a really intense cult following. So all of them have been building up to a moment like this. But this is, their for any of them, their first record on a major label. It's on Interscope, which is a like Sony subdivision. And so there is kind of a level of promotion um, happening that that's beyond what's happened in any of their individual careers before now. Before we go any further, why don't you pick a track? It's hard to just select one because three, you know, in their own way, distinct talents have come together to make the record. So, you know, one will not be representative, but just to give our listeners a, a foretaste. 
I think that the second track, $20, really kicks off the record. There's kind of a beautiful vocal trio song that, that precedes it, but then $20 kind of hits and announces that this, is, this record is going to be anything but retiring. So maybe let's start with that. It's a bad So I absolutely love this album. Um, I had a great time listening to it. I've listened to it a bunch of times. Um, and one thing I really like about it is sort of the, um, like as a mid-40s person, listening to these 27-year-olds uh, kind of uh, sing about, so they have such a strong sort of biographical turn in these songs. Like it's so, um, you know, uh, stories about friendship, stories about young love, stories about mental health, um, like a a very uh, strong vibe of the authorship here. Um, and I sort of wonder about the, like uh, the degree to which this story behind the album is uh, what people like about it or what sort of um, the fandom for it is, is uh, like resonating with. Um, I wonder what you think about that, Carl. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a few different forms of fandom. Um, there's, what each of the artists brings with them of their own followings, which were already, of course, overlapping. And then there is a, a another sort of strand of fandom that's particularly about the fact that this is a trio of queer women from um, in Baker and uh, Dickus's case from the South and, and um, Bridgers from California um, who came together in this kind of very loud and, proud kind of friendship group you know that the stories and interviews are about their text threads and their and their shared google docs and all of the things that provide kind of an ongoing thread in the past five years since they started working together and in many ways that's also i think as you're intuiting what the album is about you know the concept of boy genius is boy genius and a lot of the songs on here um are celebrations of their friendships and in, you know, there's inside jokes everywhere as you start to pick up on as you listen. But also, you know, this idea of female friendship and queer friendship as kind of a utopian alternative to um, what really thematically appears the most on each of their solo records, which are also, you know, they're, they're all autobiographical writers in a lot of ways. But on their solo records, a lot of it is about the difficulties of coping and, and the stories of, of struggling to find identity and to deal with um, relationships and life and death and all of the things that, that songwriters deal with. And here there's this sense of an oasis and a celebration. And even though all of those themes are still there and there's still all of this ambivalence, there's also this sense of refuge and finding a place where you can more boldly and also kind of relaxedly, and I think that shows up in the songwriting too, maybe to its detriment here and there, but be expressive. And even I, th I would argue that there's a kind of hope and optimism in their collective work that is all sometimes hard to find mm. in their solo work. Okay, I have to come off of that maybe to their detriment line because I was so excited to listen to this album. I'm a um, real fan of Phoebe Bridgers' songwriting, which does the thing 
I love of of like taught surprising poetry and interesting wordplay that makes you feel differently about the world and see it differently regularly. Lucy Dacus is actually not someone I've thought about much on her own, but she's a regular, regular submit tea to our summer strut mega playlist over the last three or four years. And so I have a lot of her songs on my kind of, I, I forget whether we've actually ever talked about one, but I've been listening to her for a while because some ardent fan out there keeps recommending her to us. Thank you, whoever that is. Um, and um, don't know Julian Baker's work, but I was like, cool, those, those people getting up to mischief. Great. And then, I found the songs like boring, like just a lot um, less grippy than uh, the the work I found of those two solo artists. It's like, you know, it's like the coefficient of friction on these songs. I just kept gliding by them. They were like so smooth and pretty, but they didn't have that texture that makes you stop and stick and tell them apart. There are a couple, um, I think the one that I found myself singing along to was True Blue, uh, which which is a beautiful song about friendship. Like, I love friendship. I'm not anti-friendship. I'm so glad these, you know, fledgling famous people have found friends. Yay, friendship. But, like, I didn't love the songs. Am I a bad person? <laughs> no, Julia, you're not a bad person. <laughs> That's fun. I'm curious what I'm... I, do you mean, like, musically you had trouble? Like, uh, just the actual, like, the... The, the sound, the way it was engineered or what? Both the sound and the lyrics. Like I feel like in the, in the solo work I really enjoy of Bridgers and Dacus, there's like lines you can't get out of your head and images you can't get out of your head and sort of sonic moments that you find yourself humming. And I, I listened to this album a bunch, like multiple times in multiple environments, in the car. I played it last night for a 10-year-old of my acquaintance, not my son, <laughs> who after two songs was like, can we put on Weezer? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh god! Oh my god! The kill Amazing. shot. <laughs> well, honestly, Weezer sounded pretty good. <laughs> anyway, that's interesting. A, that's a, probably a very specific and non-representative response, but I don't know. I mean, maybe we should listen to True Blue because it does it. It has those kind of like surprising tart turns that, to me, makes singer-songwritery music. Uh, you know, electric. You said you wanted to feel alive, so we went to the beach. You were born in July, 95, in a deadly heat. You say you're a winter bitch, but summer's in your blood. You can't help but become the sun. Okay, as the representative Phoebe adulator in the Culture Gab Fest uh, universe, let me let me just say I I quite like this record. You know, supergroups are really interesting phenomena, right? Because you sort of you've got two ways to go, Carl. As you point out in your piece, on the first one, it appears that they just sort of brought independent songs, they recorded them together, they blended voices somewhat, but basically it was sort of a nonce project. It kind of came together haphazardly and there wasn't time for them to blend into a single single musical unit. And here it's radically the opposite. There seems to be sort of a important blending of like egos and talents and roles in some sense so that some of the individuality, the highly distinctive individuality of each one of these artists is being sacrificed to the whole. Um, 
but one thing I would just say, I think I'm going to end up loving uh, the record. And one of the things I love about each one of these artists and this record in particular is that like, they're not afraid of a certain kind of influence, which is the boy geniuses of yore, right? That, that, it, that there's a irony and a biting irony to that name, right? The kind of fake it till you make it, you know, young male, white male, typically mu- musician who comes on with a shit ton of attitude and, you know, later the chops, you know, or whatever, catch up. And it's like Tom Waits, Leonard Cohen, even Bruce, you know, Paul Westerberg, like none of these people, they're they're treated with an appropriate amount of both undercutting irony and reverence by especially I would say Phoebe Bridgers in their own work and and there's a song called Leonard Cohen which has this just amazing line which is um, Leonard Cohen once said there's a crack in everything that's how the light gets in and I'm not an old man having an existential crisis at a Buddhist monastery (laughs) writing (laughs) horny poetry and I am not an old man having an existential crisis at a Buddhist monastery Writing horny poetry, but I agree. And I just thought, like, yeah, like, I definitely feel the shiv in between my ribs right there, you know? (laughs) But it's, like, exactly where that fucking shiv belongs, you know? It's like, yeah, (laughs) chapeau. That's, (laughs) That's fabulously delivered. And it's a song that clearly loves having been influenced by Leonard Cohen. Anyway, Carl, I've given you a lot of handles to grab at a pick one or none yeah i mean i think that combination of skepticism and insouciance and a real serious reverence for music history is so indicative of their general sensibility and you know and the like there's been backlash against that leonard cohen song from people weirdly offended on Leonard Cohen's behalf. But of course, Leonard Cohen would be the first to think that was a funny joke, right? But at the same time, I would say, you know, Julia, you're not alone in your response. I really think this record is a grower. It took me a a week or so of listening to it to really dig into the things that I at first didn't. But I also can understand, I don't think song by song, it has the same intensity and potency as uh, as the solo work i think it offers other things you know I, this the song not strong enough which is kind of the hookiest most radio friendly it's still full of this like searching insecurity and and crises of identity and recognition but it also is they're they're doing stuff together that they wouldn't be able to do on their own you know there's that expansiveness and the ability to sort of roll around in it um is fresh to this album. But yeah, you're not alone in having this rec- this reaction that this is kind of mid. This is kind of you know not not what I was looking for from from people of this kind of level of of perspicacity. Um, I think it's all there if you dig into it. But I also you know one of the things I say in my piece is if they were to do another record and it kind of stays in this zone of the celebration of of freedomness for freedom's sake. Um, 
that it could begin to feel kind of cloying and and wearing. Um, I trust that that's not what's going to happen. But I think in their stories, um, having come through, you know, Phoebe Bridgers in particular, but all of them talk about this experience of being indie musicians who've really been thrust into spotlights much larger than they ever expected and dealing with internet fan culture, dealing with the loss of privacy and control that comes along with that and the way that they're kind of found this place where they can talk about those concerns and the effect of those things on their lives with two other people who understand what it's about. You know, there's, it's easy to, overlook how almost unprecedented this record is in mm. a lot of ways in in rock right. history and immediately move on to to well it's not all that but i think you know it's important to pause and go right like this idea hasn't and in many ways couldn't exist um previously to this period you know in rock history where like all pretty much any decent rock band that you name these days is fronted by women. Like you couldn't have mm. an all male super group <laughs> of so people true. in their twenties. <laughs> like they, those people are they, the people aren't there to form the super group out of. So there's something special <laughs> about the moment. Um, but yeah, if if it's if it's not landing for you, like go back to the solo records because there's an amazing amount of stuff to be discovered there as well. All right, Carl Wilson is a music critic for Slate. His piece about Boy Genius is up on Slate right now. Carl, as always, a real, real pleasure to have you on the show and discuss. Oh, thanks so much. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse. Rebecca, what do you got? So I'm going to endorse a memoir called Don't Call Me Home by a person named Alexandra Otter. Um, okay, so she's the daughter of Viva, who was a Warhol superstar, mm-hmm. um, one of the small celebrities that he gathered around himself. Um, and her sister is Gabby Hoffman, the actress. She's a famous yoga teacher. Um, I first heard about her because she used to teach at Kula Yoga in New York. Um, but she's a really good writer. So it's sort of being framed in the marketing copy as a memoir about growing up in the Chelsea Hotel, which it sort of is. And I can see why they did it that way, because that's probably the biggest selling point. Um, But it's really about having an extremely unconventional childhood, an unconventional mother who uh, sort of danced the line between uh, artist and narcissist quite a bit. And about being near a lot of money and sort of having access to it sometimes, but not ever really having it as a family. Um, Also about a million other things, but I loved it. I read it super quickly and I recommend it. Uh, That sounds amazing. I love it when people who aren't writers just do it and are better than me at it that's right really, <laughs> <Yeah>. that's really <laughs> awesome <laughs> i love it and i hate it yeah. uh and uh, julia what do you have i'm not really quite sure what of the story i'm about to tell qualifies as an endorsement i guess the endorsement is like going down wikipedia rabbit holes in response to your children's questions because I'm definitely not going to endorse the fact that I learned when I did that on vacation. Um, But what happened on vacation was we were in Spain. The children were drinking Fanta because my approach to vacation parenting is unlimited soda, which really bothers the other parents around me. Sorry, parents who have been having (laughs) vacation (laughs) for setting a bad example, but I found it to be a good way to um, 
incentivize uh, keeping up with the arduousness of travel for my children. So they drank a bunch of Fanta and some Coke on vacation. And we were talking about the origins of Fanta. And we we're trying to figure out, oh, is Fanta Italian? Is Fanta Spanish? Which led us to Google the history of Fanta. Is either of you aware of who invented Fanta? No, I would love the to Nazis. know. The Nazis, the Nazis invented so Fanta. So I'm not endorsing that fact, but I'm endorsing the experience that my family had when we learned that fact, which is like one of those things where you're like, oh, let me look this up. I bet I know what the answer is. And I just didn't at all. And it turns out it's like widely covered. There's not a secret like, you know, uh, it, it, Slate ran an article about it while I was editing it that I didn't oh. remember. So, you know, we... we, we um didn't uncover anything secret, but basically the, there was Coca-Cola factory in Germany during World War II. And, you know, as a result of sanctions and wars, whatever, the, the syrup, the underlying crucial Coca-Cola syrup no longer made it over to Europe. And so some dude in Germany under Nazi rule invented Fanta, which was oh like gosh. widely available in Germany. It was used as like a cooking sweetener because people didn't have stuff. Um, anyway, the Nazis invented Fanta or not the Nazis, a person under Nazi rule invented Fanta, <laughs> really not the history that I thought of. Then I, I guess when the war ended and Coke took its factory over again, they d didn't produce it for a while. Then eventually they rolled it out and they rolled it out outside of the U S essentially as protectionism to keep, um, to keep Coke dominant as Pepsi began to threaten it in the U S can't wait for this capitalist caper movie, yeah, right. Steve. <laughs> so it's a very unlikely origin story for the soda, and there's plenty to find out about it on the internet if you Google it. So again, not endorsing the fact that Fanta is a, is a Nazi origin soda, but endorsing Googling stuff with your kids. I love it. Uh, okay, so I'm going to endorse something that's the kind of project that when I hear about it, I'm like, yeah, not interested in that. Um, there's a a uh, jazz pianist named Brad Meldow, whose work I love. I really admire what he's doing. He just plays with like really deep moods and ah, interesting voicings on and on, all the stuff. But um, anyway, he just has come out with an album, 2023, called Your Mother Should Know Brad Meldow Plays the Beatles. And when a uh, good friend of mine, Chris Eigeman, and very good friend of this program told me about it, I was like, really? And you know what? He... Chris was absolutely right about this. He's like, it just takes these songs because usually there are two problems, right? One is that is that you know you have these super super almost overly familiar um, melodies and chord structures, right? And you have them being transposed into an entirely other medium, which doesn't typically use those kinds of melodies or chord structures, and so what kind of a hybrid are you getting? You're sort of getting this weird Frankenstein where you have this super familiar, almost jingly Beatle thing that they did better than anybody. Um, and then you've got like the noodlings, the esoteric noodlings of a jazz, you know, virtuoso. And I'm never sure how the two go together. I've ne I don't think I've ever heard a jazz cover of a, of a Beatles song that I had, you know, uh, any patience for. Almost every cut on this is beautifully done because he he honors the original thing that we love, which is the reason for doing it in the first place. And then he takes it in unexpected directions without it being esoteric.
I think it's a great jazz piano record, and I recommend it both heartily to our listeners and oh so humbly, like a little gift dropped on the doorstep of Julia Turner. <laughs> yeah, you're my jazz piano guru. I, I just did our Passover Seder this weekend. I was playing uh, Sunny Red, so um, I will give it a give it a whirl. Rebecca, I mean, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It has been too long. Let's find ways for you to sub and guest uh, soon, please. I love it. Thanks so much. And of course, Julia Turner. Julia, that was really fun. That was a good show. Yeah, fun topics this week. Yep. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Patel. Our production assistant is Jessica Balderrama. Our producer is Cameron Drews for Julia Turner and Rebecca Onion. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Mm-hmm.